0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 65, The Return of the Cannon King. For Alfred Krupp, the current leader of the Krupp Concern, and the first Cannon King, 1871 was the best and worst of times. Because of his guns, the cast-steel guns that he had figured out how to make, his leader, the all-highest, Kaiser Wilhelm of the Second Reich, had not only defeated the hated French in a blurry haze of cannon shot, but now the Kaiser had under his feet five grand duchies, six duchies, seven principalities, three free cities, and the prize of battle, the land of Alsace and Lorraine. Yet for the cannon king, he was in misery, to hell with business, and the accolades he had sought after for years. His beloved soon to be his hated Villa Hugel, was unfinished. Why? For the simple reason that so much of his material was coming from France, which, understandably, was not exporting anything, well, not to the Germans, at the moment. Sections of Hugel were undone. Many portions had no roof. But, more's the pity, his leader, the Kaiser, was not focusing solely on Alfred, which is what Krupp wanted. No Wilhelm was busy, alternatively enjoying and organizing his new kingdom. Then there were Krupp's enemies, of which he had more than a few, and being thrust into the world he was in, these adversaries were not ordinary men who lacked influence. Quartermaster of the Second Reich, General Polbilski, told and retold his emperor that muzzle velocity was not important. Honestly, it's not known if the idiot knew the truth or not. He only knew, saying this, hurt Krupp. While longtime rival Krieg's minister, Rune, invited Wilhelm to give up Castile and revisit the sturdy and dependable bronze cannon. In this case, the idiot knew he was wrong, but cared more about bringing the upstart Krupp low. Although Alfred was beside himself with woe over his unfinished castle, his monument to himself. He was objective enough to know that the French, just like every other beaten power, would redouble their efforts to make themselves strong again, using the humiliation to push themselves beyond human limits. Germany, this new Germany, had to stay ahead of them, of everyone. The Teutonic challenge, as it were, had been thrown down. It was only a matter of time before someone, picked it up. So Alfred went back to what he did best, besides making cast steel items or agonizing over his home. He wrote letters. On April 13, 1871, just six weeks after France's new National Assembly approved the terms of the peace treaty, Krupp wrote to Moltke, the field marshal, saying he had new weapons that would astound the military. All he needed was an empty field, Two miles long for the trials. Yet Moltke, who seemed not to have a grudge against Krupp, childishly replied, That's a good idea. You should reply to Rune. Yet he knew of the professional and personal hatred each man had for the other. But Krupp did, and got nowhere. So he wrote to the Kaiser, and equally got nowhere. His letters screamed that he had even better guns than those used recently against France, but even this got him nowhere. Privately, Wilhelm and Bismarck knew Krupp was right, but now was not the time to upset the military. It had, after all, just won a brilliant victory, using Krupp steel, of course. But Rune's mobilization reorganization had also been decisive in the last battle, and the army knew this and loved him for it. Now was not the time to override the riding high, Rune. It was time to be patient, something Alfred had not a little trouble with. So Alfred came home from Berlin with nothing to show for it, no new contracts, no idea of when he would be able to show off his new guns. Then, with awkward timing, at least for Krupp, the Russians came calling, but he had put them off. After all, he almost sold France, his latest and greatest right before the war. Who knows how that would have affected the war if he had. Well, Krupp knew it would have been bad for his country. And war between Germany and Russia was possible as anything else. No, better to fob them off with trinkets. He was a patriot, after all, when it was time to be so. Soon after, Birmingham, Alabama wrote to Krupp, a letter saying he should bring his entire concern there, They would robustly support him, but that was unthinkable. Not until that fall would France allow limestone and other materials to be shipped to Krupp's little kingdom to begin construction again. But by now, his nerves were shot. So, it was off to Britain for the winter, at Torquay. With him was his mostly estranged wife, Berta, who got to relax from relaxing in Germany while their 17-year-old son, Fritz, a botanist, tagged along. He spent his time gathering samples. Meanwhile, Alfred wrote letter after letter to Berlin, saying France would seek revenge. The military needed to see his latest designs. But there was no reply. So his letters were then directed at the Procura, the entity that oversaw the day-to-day operations of the Krupp Works. He instructed his men, in minute detail, how to clean certain items, and basically, how to do their job, that they had been doing for years. Not that Alfred was capable of genuine happiness, but what peace he was capable of was certainly destroyed when he was informed in a letter that, one, his villa would not be ready until 1873, and that, two, there had been dissension within the factory. It turned out to be small potatoes, but when he arrived home, he was told by his agent in Berlin that he had been able to stage the gun trials, and they had been, no pun intended, a smashing success. Now Bismarck had come round and pointed out that Germany needed those guns, but no one else was to have them. To which Alfred could only reply, Um... Russia had heard of the trial and ordered guns and their orders had been specific. They wanted Krupp's latest and greatest. Yet Krupp got around this by building his impressive cannon, but had them cast to be heavier than necessary, so they would be less maneuverable. Still, he was now building for two customers, but his works were inadequate to the task. So now, with orders in his hands, Alfred began to buy up other companies, That, themselves, held majority interests in mines all over Europe. And then he needed to get those supplies to his factories. So he ordered four Dutch ships to be built. And his shopping spree continued. Alfred then made down payments for over 300 mines and bought several competitors outright. If all this sounds monumental, it was, even for someone as rich as Krupp, the cannon king. Did he really have all that much cash? No, of course not. The money was coming from banks. But as their entries of debt started piling up, one by one, they closed their lines of credit to Krupp. Yet Alfred wasn't operating within a vacuum. Few ever do. German industry of all types expanded after the Franco-Prussian War, mainly because the French were making reparation payments and the Germans were spending it. From 1871 to 1874, German industry doubled. Even Bismarck, a man who was practical in every way, bought a little of this and that. But in September of 1873, France made its last payment. Gone were the days of money flowing in to be used to keep the cycle going. The money disappeared, the well dried up, the wheel stopped turning, And soon after, the various banks started calling in loans to cover themselves. Some bills were paid, but not all, not all by half. In reverse of the Great Depression of 1929, the economic downturn here began in Viennese banks, spread throughout Europe, and then to the United States. The New York Stock Exchange, out of desperation, closed down for ten days. Soon, everyone was cutting back, selling what they could. Well, everyone, that is, except for Krupp. Much like during the recent collapse of 2008, when Bank of America, which was actually in a strong position at the time, until it started buying up everything in sight, Alfred attempted to corner the market on natural resources. His financial advisors staggered under the weight of the increased debt. But Alfred kept on going. This was his chance, as he saw it, to make it big. But what he made big was his total sum of liabilities. Soon Krupp owed some 32 million marks. At this point, his money was going out just to pay interest on the loans. But he kept buying. His debt kept on rising. Something had to give. The idea of going public was offered up, but Krupp slammed it down. The idea of paying out dividends to people who did not work for the Krupp concern was anathema to the man. So he pulled out his ace, the Kaiser. Yet the ace didn't respond in the way Krupp wanted, by throwing an imperial cloak over the Krupp concern to keep it from the cold. Wilhelm was told, as Germany's economy zoomed with French money, that there were now some 500 limited liability companies within his realm. If he was to bail out even one, the rest would come screaming to his door. No, that was not the way to go. For now, Berlin could only pay Krupp against future orders, so that's what it did. Which, of course, was not good enough for Alfred. He continued to pester the Kaiser. Yet Wilhelm had his own ace, Bismarck. The Iron Chancellor was told to make it clear to the owner of Krupp that there would be no last-second financial save. And Bismarck said it loud and direct enough for even Krupp to hear. He was good at that sort of thing. Being a man of extremes, Krupp went from demanding relief to seeking it for himself, once he knew he wasn't going to get his way. Retiring to his bed, he claimed, I don't have the strength for anything. There, he was happy to lay around, And wait for death, or for a word from Berlin. But Bismarck could not be outmaneuvered. Berlin sent three doctors of various bedside manners to Essen. The first one recognized a hypochondriac when he saw one, and simply stood over the bed and yelled, "Stehen Sie auf! Arbeiten Sie weiter! Sie sind gesund!" Stand up, get up, and get back to work. This worked for a while, but the doctor, Bismarck's own personal physician could not stay indefinitely, so he left, which allowed Krupp to again set up camp in his bedroom. Another doctor came along and sympathetically agreed with everything Alfred had to say, which allowed Krupp to convince himself that he was indeed dying, so he was dismissed. What's the point? The third doctor was somewhere in between these two, and so got mixed results. The most Krupp would allow himself to do was wage war against his directors and Berlin through letters. This got him nowhere with Berlin and made things worse for his accountants. The work he wrote was not to slacken. There would be no layoffs, no wage cuts. He was the Kruppeneers' father; they looked to him. But eventually, he accepted the inevitable and had most of the workers' pay cut which cut him to the bone, but there was nothing for it. But this was too little way too late. His creditors wanted an audit. They wanted assets sold off. They wanted to be paid. Alfred would not hear this, even from his self-professed deathbed. What was needed was simply 30 million marks, roughly 17.5 million dollars. This could or would not be given over by any one bank. So a group of banks, led by the Rothschild Group, raised the funds. But nothing comes for free, especially money. So Krupp was forced, if he wanted that money, to allow one of the bank's group's officers to sit on his board. This was beyond insulting for the man who had made his own fortune, carved out his own world, but again... There was nothing for it. The agreement was reached on April 4, 1874. The only good news for Alfred was that Der Hügel was finished. The entrance hall had five chandeliers, with some 40 yards long. Behind that were some 300 bedrooms. The dinner table was 60 feet long, and over the decades, almost every head of state of Europe would sit around that table but not the master's wife. She could not stand the cold castle, more like an oversized coffin, or her cold husband. And Alfred rarely saw his son, who tried to get on with his father. But Alfred's personality did not lean towards warmth, or patience, or small talk, or understanding someone else's point of view. Before too long, Alfred hated Der Hull himself, He froze in the winter, nearly died of heat exposure during the summer, but he couldn't blame the architect. In order to do that, he would have to look into a mirror. With the Rothschild money, Alfred weathered the storm, and orders from the U.S. were slowly paying off his monumental debt. Krupp steel, in the form of rail lines and seamless steel tires for the trains, respectfully and literally, crisscrossed the United States and Canada and carried the trains from coast to coast. Almost every type of tool needed during that time made of the first-class Krupp steel was bringing in millions of marks each year. The British steelmaker Armstrong got work from U.S. and Canada as well, but nothing like Krupp. Yet in time, the U.S. steelmakers, who would peak during the 1880s in terms of productivity, would cause American firms to order less and less from Europe, which forced Krupp and Armstrong to focus more on guns. And as each manufacturer produced mostly for their own country, an arms race was the result. And as the saying goes, an unused weapon is a useless weapon. The good news continued for Krupp. In 1879, Hans Yenka was made chairman of the Prokura. This giant of a man was a no-nonsense leader who steered the company for the next two-plus decades. But more than that, he was of the Kaiser's official family. When the Krupp works needed something, Yenka had the connections to get the results, directly at the top. More and more, Yenka ran the concern, and less and less did he call on Alfred, which strangely suited the controlling older man, just fine. Things were going well. He had the ear of the Kaiser, so he could focus, or rather obsess, over his failing health, whether real or imagined, and continue with his battle against Derhugu. But there were wider effects of having Yenka, besides on Alfred's organs. The area around Essen exploded in its population as more and more workers were brought in from all over Europe. And now that there was a direct tie between Essen and Berlin, whatever reforms or work culture was established in Essen was soon mirrored by Berlin. Essen and the surrounding villages, which in Lauford's latter years became towns and then cities, became a European melting pot, which led to cultural and political strife. Germany itself was expanding, and the people were demanding more control. So the Kaiser had to live with two houses of representatives. But Alfred would not tolerate any political tension that might lead to a disruption of work. His answer was that everyone was to be mixed in and thrown together. They would learn to live and work together or, by God, be thrown out. Everyone was expected to be Crumpanier first, and only then Polish or Swedish, Saxon, Prussians, or Austrians. This egalitarian view was picked up by Berlin. But then came the time, or so they believed, of the workers. Strikes were organized, pamphlets were passed out, boxes were stood upon, and complaints of harsh working conditions were shouted out. You can imagine how Alfred responded to this. But surprisingly, his reaction would pave the way for better conditions for his people, his children. In fact, what Alfred set down in the September of 1872, his general regulations, were and still are considered modern and liberal. This document spelled out what exactly was expected of the workers, and in return, what the concern would provide for them. Namely, health services, a relief fund, pensions, hospitals, homes for the retired, life insurance, low-cost housing. Charity funds for those who lost everything during one of the Ruhr's many floods. Soup kitchens. Discounted stores and shops for the workers. Walmart and Trump could take a page from Alfred's book. Krupp took on the role of father. Expected obedience and hard work, but he took care of those who took care of his life's works. And again, Berlin followed suit. To be sure, Bismarck was pressured into this, by the various liberal political parties, but his out was the example set forth by Krupp. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So just wanted to give a quick shout-out to Ulrich for helping me with the one part of the translation of this. I just thought some somebody yelling in German, you know, get up, get out of bed, you lazy bum, would be appropriate. Better yet, I'll let him say it himself. Hallo meine Geschichtsfreunde, mein Name ist Ulrich Höxer aus Nürnberg in Deutschland. Hello my history friends, I'm Ulrich Höxer and I'm from Nuremberg in Germany.